Hello, I'm Jimmy Stuckey from Charleston. This is another in the series of the South Carolina Bar Foundation's programs and interviews with distinguished South Carolina lawyers. We have with us today one of the most prominent and distinguished attorneys in South Carolina, probably in the history of South Carolina, Morris D. Rosen of the South Carolina and Charleston Bar. There's an old Chinese blessing that says, may you live in interesting times. Mr. Rosen has lived in very interesting times. He was born in Charleston in 1919 and grew up in the period between the two great wars. He was admitted to the South Carolina Bar in 1947. He's been a distinguished practitioner before the South Carolina Bar and one of our most, most distinguished attorneys for the last 50 years. Morris started off with a bright legal future. He was number one in his freshman class. He was a member of the Honorary Society wig and robe when he graduated from the University of South Carolina School of Law in 1947. He started practice after that here in Charleston, and he has become one of South Carolina's most distinguished and best-known matrimonial lawyers. And as you know, South Carolina enacted its divorce law in 1949, two years after Morris started. And he was on the cutting edge of that, and we will explore with him today some very interesting stories and antidotes and history about South Carolina's matrimonial law. He served as corporation counsel for the city of Charleston for 16 years, beginning in 1959. And he was on the cutting edge there of the civil rights demonstrations and unrest of the 1960s. We will discuss that. About the same period of time, and for a period of 15 or 16 years, he was on the South Carolina Board of Law Examiners, which is an interesting era, and he has some interesting stories about that. I guess Morris's distinguished career, not culminated, but reached an apex in 1994, when he was named by the South Carolina School of Law as one of its most complete lawyers. And the same year, he was awarded the Distinguished Durant Service Award by the South Carolina Bar Association, of which he served as president in 1979 and 1980. We're delighted today that he's granted us time to grant us this interview. We think it'll be a very interesting commentary on South Carolina beginning in the 1920s for the last 60-some-odd years, and we're going to hear it from one of our most distinguished attorneys, a lawyer's lawyer, a gentleman who is a fellow of the American College of Trial Lawyers and an advocate in the American Board of Trial Advocates. Morris, we are delighted that you'll be with, that you're with us today and we look forward to this interview and perpetuating it for future generations. Thank you, Jim. I'm happy to be here. Tell us, please, about growing up in Charleston in the 1920s, which was after the First World War. Well, you know, Charleston was not the beautiful, modernized city it is today. Charleston in the 20s was poor, and most of the homes in Charleston uh, in the 20s were uh, in need of paint and in need of repairs. And uh, that was true all over town, even below Broad Street, where all your valuable homes are today. It was a poor town, but we kids growing up 
We didn't realize it was poor. We were happy as ducks. We, uh, we went to public schools. Public schools were great in those days. Hopefully they're still great today. Uh, we had a good time. Uh, nobody's parents made any real money in those days. Everybody uh, scrimped to, to get by. The Depression, of course, was, was part of our life uh, beginning in 1930. And uh, uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, I remember all of us being so happy that the College of Charleston was here because without it, many of us would never have been able to go to college. My tuition at the College of Charleston in the first year I went, which was 1937, 1938, was, believe it or not, Jim, $75. And I'm sure that the students today wouldn't believe it. Uh, but the $75, I worked all summer. Uh, I worked at Edwards 10 cents store in the grocery department uh, to save that $75. Uh, and uh, we were able uh, to make it that way. It was a great city to grow up in. It still is. And, uh, of course, uh, when I look around and see all the newcomers to Charleston and how much they love it, uh, I'm so happy that I was one of the ones who was born here and was here from the very beginning. Uh, when you move around Charleston now, uh, so many of the people are recent arrivals. Uh, after World War II, we had a great influx of, of people into the city and it's grown ever since. Uh, I don't know whether I've answered your question or not, Jim, but my recollections are that everybody was poor, so nobody was living up to the Joneses. I remember my daddy had a Chevrolet automobile. He paid $40 for it. It was a touring car. No windows in it. Uh, and uh, if it rained, you had to put up those satelloid shutters. And it cost him $40, and it ran like a clock. Uh, now, of course, we know $40 won't go very far <laughs> in an automobile. <laughs> maybe, maybe give you a tank full of gas. <laughs> That's a bad end. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I believe, visited Charleston during your boyhood. Do you recall that? That is one of my most vivid memories. He came twice. He came and spoke at the Citadel on one occasion. And uh, I must have been 18 years old, thereabouts, because I went over to the Citadel. And uh, uh, there was a big crowd there. And he spoke. And uh, it was a thrill uh, for an 18-year-old uh, to, uh, to to hear him. Uh, then on another occasion, I believe he came into the old railroad station in North Charleston by train, and he was going to take a cruise on a cruiser. And the cruiser was in the city at the Columbus Street docks. So he and Jimmy Burns rode down uh, in an open touring car. Uh, uh, I don't even remember any uh, FBI people running by the car because no one envisioned the type of uh, problems we have these days in protecting our president. 
and I must not have been over five or six feet from him. I was on the corner of Morris and King Street. He drove by with Jimmy Burns, waving to everybody, everybody clapping. My mother and I had gone down together, and it was quite an experience. And uh, it was a big crowd on King Street, and uh, it was it was wonderful having him come through. Now, he did not speak on that last occasion, but he did speak on the first occasion. Obviously, he was a very popular president and much more popular than Herbert Hoover, his predecessor. You told me an anecdote about Mr. Hoover's supposed well, visit to Charleston. Well, the story they used to tell, and I never confirmed it, was that when Herbert Hoover spoke at the uh, Citadel uh, on the parade ground, uh, they, uh, of course, it was during the Depression, and t everybody was uh, having all sorts of financial difficulties. And uh, they fired a 16-gun salute, and uh, there were two farmers in the audience, audience from Edisto Island who were really catching the devil in those days. And, of course, when the smoke cleared away, you could see the president ready to begin his speech, and one former said to the other, by gun, they missed him. <laughs> that was pretty well what people were thinking, unfortunately, about Herbert Hoover at the time. Tell us about the transition from the College of Charleston to the University of South Carolina School of Law. Well, you know, I love the College of Charleston and remain very loyal to the college and very active over at the college. Uh, I thought the transition was great. I'd never been away to college. Uh, when I started college, I was lucky to be able to go to the College of Charleston, although now that I look back, I couldn't have made a better choice even if I'd had a lot of money. And I got to the law school, didn't know a soul, uh, uh, met with the dean who was Nelson Frierson, and he was a great dean. Uh, a great Anglophile. He, he would talk to us about Britain's problems. 1940-41, we were not yet in the war. Uh, and uh, when I first met with him, he decided he wasn't going to admit me to law school, Jim. And I asked him why. He said, well, you've only got three years of pre-law. I said, well, Dean, the catalog says two years is all you need. And he said, well, legally that's true, but I think you ought to have a bachelor's degree. And I said, well, I don't have the money to go back, so I'm going to stay here. And I asked that you admit me. He did admit me. And uh, uh, my first year there, I lived in Preston Dormitory. And it was a wonderful experience being away from home. First time I'd ever really been away from home. And uh, that nine months was a learning experience, both meeting new people, people outside of Charleston, and also learning something about the law. Law school didn't have, Jim, but about 95 people in the whole school. And our freshman class was about 32. And uh, so it was not a big uh, student body. Uh, we had about five professors I think two of them were full-time. The other practiced law in Columbia and just came over 
like Charlie Elliott, who was a great real estate lawyer, he'd come over and teach us real estate. And uh, uh, Carl R. Roberts would come over and teach us some subjects. Uh, it was a great time in law school. Uh, no rules were kept. If you came, fine. If you didn't come, that was all right, too, as long as you passed the exam at the end of each semester. I don't think that's the rule today. I think they do keep some sort of rules today. Did you meet your classes in the old Pettigrew College on the campus? That's where we met, Pettigrew College. I think it's still there, but I don't know what school it now houses. Uh, and there was a great building, and it could accommodate 90 or 95 students. Of course, uh, the student body today, it could not accommodate. That's why they have a new law school. Matter of fact, they've had two additional law schools since Pettigrew. They had one for a few years, and then they built the present, a law school. And Pettigrew was great. You got to know everybody in the school because there was only about 95 uh, full-time students. And uh, it was a wonderful building and a, and a wonderful experience uh, that first year. Who were some of your classmates? Well, actually, we had quite a group, Jim. Uh, we, we had uh, George Coleman, who became a circuit judge. Mm -hmm. We had Saul Blott, who became a federal judge. We had uh, Paul Sansbury from Darlington. We had Louis Lassane, who I think died recently, who became a family court judge. We had W.W. W. Walker, who you know, Jim, was the owner of W.C. Wolven Company. Uh, when Bill finished two years, he took the exam and never got a degree, but was admitted to the bar. And uh, he came out, went into the real estate business, and did quite better than his lawyer friends did. <laughs> Bill remained a friend of mine until he died about eight months ago. Uh, there were other people in my class, Milton Norton from Marion, South Carolina, who died at the age of 40 of a heart attack while he was practicing law in Marion. Max Singletary, he's a partner in the McNair firm. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in our class. Uh, there were others. Uh, John Sloan, I think, is a lawyer in Columbia. It was quite a group of, of Israel Bernstein, who's a lawyer in Columbia. We lost two of our class in World War II. Uh, I don't remember the names, actually, but two of them were killed in World War II. The rest of them uh, survived the war, which was, I guess, not a bad average overall. Did World War II interrupt your education in law school? Well, what happened, Jim, I went in the Coast Guard in May of 1992 uh, and served three and a half years. Uh, so I was interrupted by three and a half years. Uh, I celebrated 50 years in the ball on January 25th of this year. And uh, uh, I realize now uh, that had I not been gone those three and a half years, I, I'd have 53 and a half years in rather than just 50. But I guess 50 is enough. It did interrupt it, but listen, it was something we all had to do, and uh, we did it. You, know. you finished law school in 1947, a member of Wig and Robe, which obviously meant that you were 
at the top of your class, if not the number one guy in the class. You came back to Charleston to practice. What affected your career choices? Well, Charleston in those days wasn't looking for lawyers, Jim. When I look back, I'm not certain as to the number, but I think it was in the neighborhood of 75 to 85 lawyers in the whole county. Uh, there was one in North Charleston, so the other 84 were in the Peninsula City. Nobody was looking for lawyers. I mean, you couldn't get hired by anybody. Uh, my daddy had a friend he played poker with, and he told my daddy to send me down. I went down, Mr. Russell Burbage, he was a city magistrate. He said, I don't have any law business to give you, but I have an office you can occupy. And if any business comes along that I can throw you away, I'll do it. Uh, and that's when I started. Uh, I had a job at the county. Uh, the county established after World War II a county service office. That office is still in existence. And I was the attorney for that office. In other words, I represented veterans who were in need of some help in some area. And uh, that paid me $150 a month. I taught at the College of Charleston a couple of courses for $100 a month. So that was $250 a month. Uh, the first month I practiced, I made $15. So I had a total income of $265. Fortunately, my wife Ida worked as a school teacher, uh, so we were able to eat and uh, have uh, uh, some type of life. It was a it was a tough uh, beginning, and all of my contemporaries had the same problems, of course. Uh, people like uh, Clarence Singletary, Ed Buckley, uh, guys who started about the same time, Henry Smythe. Of course, Henry had a firm to go into, but as Henry tells it, even they were struggling in those days. There wasn't a lot of money in the law in those days, uh, but as we know, that changed. Fortunately. Do you recall how you earned that first $15 fee? I think I made a tax return out of somebody. <laughs> I didn't hold myself out as an experienced tax lawyer, you understand, Jim. But making out a simple tax return, I could do that. I think I made $15 for that. It was scary. <laughs> it was scary. Uh, I was in the building at Broad and Church Street where the hat man is, which mm -hmm. is... Uh, a uh, familiar uh, uh, painting that everyone uh, comments on. And I used to look out the window of my office at people walking up and down because they didn't have anything to do. Uh, it's sort of hard for a lawyer to stand up and look out the window and wish he had some clients that he could be doing some work for. But that's the way, and I wasn't by myself. I mean, I, uh, all of my pairs were more or less in the same uh, category, you know what I mean? It was The ball was good to me, and I'd get some business from people like Thomas Stoney or uh, Gedney Howe. Uh, they would send me uh, some work to do, and, and uh, it, it kept me from uh, starving, of course. It was all right. You remained a sole practitioner for several decades, and I guess practicing in the same Hatman building down on the corner of Church and Broad Street, and obviously with your 
reputation and, and background and so forth, you had opportunities to either form a firm or go with a firm. Um, why did you choose to be a sole practitioner? You know, Jim, that's an interesting question. I always wanted the same thing. I did have opportunities to join with uh, my pairs and create firms or to join all the firms. Uh, I was invited uh, into an older firm, and uh, I was very elated at the invitation. And uh, I uh, came home, told my wife about it, and she and I went over to see my dear friend, Gedney Howe, who was a little older than me and who was a former solicitor, had a good practice, and was sending me business. And I told Gadney about this offer. I thought it was wonderful. He looked at me and he said, are you crazy? Well, that deflated me completely. I said, why? He said, because they need you. You don't need them. Don't do it. Well, I didn't do it. And his advice, his advice was right, as it turned out. But finally, when my two sons came in, I think Robert came in about 20 two years ago, Richard about 20, uh, it was too difficult keeping separate books on what each of us would take in and what, how we were going to share the overhead. Uh, so we organized the firm. And in this day and time, that probably is, is the only way I could survive at my age is to have somebody that I could lean on, you know. So that's what we've done. But the first... I would think the first 30 to 35 years, I was a sole practitioner. And I've always said that happiness is being a sole practitioner. <laughs> because when you have partners and associates, there's always the, the, the problems of personnel and paralegals and secretaries. Whereas when you practice by yourself, you don't have that problem. Incidentally, Jim, my secretary, who you know about for mine, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. has been with me 50 years. She's the only secretary I've ever had. And uh, uh, we may have the record for the state, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, she's been to me 50 years and been very loyal, very devoted, and very good. And so now we know the key to your success. <laughs> well, now, Jim, I'm entitled to a little credit. <laughs> Well, she saved me a lot of times, I can tell you that. On next week's episode, Rosen discusses the development of matrimonial law in South Carolina, along with Charleston politics. Additionally, he shares his involvement in the civil rights movement. <laughs>